This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by my friends at 10th Ward Distilling Company. 10th Ward Distilling Company is a woman-owned craft distillery located in the heart of historic downtown Frederick, Maryland. Known for their non-traditional and unconventional approach, 10th Ward produces a variety of spirits including whiskey, gin, limited one-time only releases, and Maryland's first and only absinthe. And let me tell you folks, that's something special. You can visit their cocktail lab and barrel room in downtown Frederick for tastings, spirit flights, cocktail creations, tours, and private events. And check this out. They just produced their first canned cocktail. It's called Corpse Reviver Number 10. Love that name. It's made with their double gold Genevieve-inspired gin, their gold medal absinthe, lemon, and chai vanilla bean simple syrup. There are no artificial flavors or preservatives this stuff is good. And you can order it on the internet at their website to get it shipped to your house if your state allows it, or you can order it for curbside pickup at their tasting room in Frederick. So visit their website at 10thwarddistilling.com for more information or follow them on Facebook or Instagram at 10th Ward Co. That's at T-E-N-T-H-W-A-R-D-C-O. Now let's get this thing rolling. Somewhere in like a year or so, I just kind of, I learned that you could travel and do this. <laughs> and that uh, I also learned that it was like maybe feasible that it could be something you did professionally. Right. But it's, you know, I, I grew up in Virginia and Ohio. And so it, the wine industry is not something that anyone sure ever even considers. Unless you're born it, into it. Yeah. yeah, it's just relatively small industry. So, right. so I just got the bug that way but it was really through the work i just really loved the there's so much about the the actual process that is what drew me to it this is barrel tasting with howard fletcher a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers craft brewers and spirit distillers in the dmv so grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage don't forget to subscribe to the show and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. Hello and welcome to another episode of Barrel Tasting. I'm Howard Fletcher. And in this episode, I found myself in the heart of Virginia's wine country once again. Yeah, it's a place I love to be. This time I'm on the grounds of Northgate Vineyard in the tasting room of Walt Family Wine in Percival. Sarah and Nate Walsh are firmly dedicated to the production and sales of premium wine. Nate Walsh is a career wine grower. You're going to hear how he started working in the harvest at Horton Vineyards in Central Virginia and went on to work in vineyards and wineries in the Willamette Valley in Central Otago. Later, he spent seven years as the winemaker and vineyard manager for Sunset Hills Vineyard, also here in Percival. During a time of large expansion, it was during this time that he began searching for a site from which he knew he could create truly premium Virginia wine. And that's exactly what he did. Sarah Walsh conversely comes from a background of fine dining and fine wine sales and wine education. Together, Sarah and Nate make quite the grape juice tag team. And we are very lucky to have them making wine here in our region. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with winemaker Nate Walsh of Walsh Family Wine. Let's all raise a glass. I'm here at Nate Walls at Walsh Family Wine. Uh, I have to tell you, this is a beautiful tasting room where we are right now. Uh, driving in, I always love driving in the Percival anyway. This is the Northgate uh, Vineyard, is that correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, and you are the head winemaker. Correct. Co-owner mm-hmm. here with your wife. And uh, I was doing a little research as I always do on my on my guests here and on your website, it says that you are a career wine grower, which I'll tell you, like, I was, I came late to wine. Right. As a drinker. And um, if I had to do it all over again, I might say, well, I'll investigate the wine industry because I really envy you guys. I like what you guys do. I find it very interesting. So tell me, how did you get into this business and what makes you a career wine grower? Yeah. So I guess we use that term because it's, I didn't come into this from any other industry. Uh-huh. So I 
I did not grow up in wine. I grew up drinking milk and <laughs> eating Chef Boyardee. Um, but I went to school in uh, Richmond, Virginia at VCU. All right. And in the summer, uh, I would, I had just had friends that lived in the Charlottesville area. So I, I would lived on like a little farm in the Charlottesville area where there are a lot of wineries, yes. as you know. So the way I got into the wine industry literally was I needed a job. And this was sort of at the tail end of when you, you looked in the classified in the papers. Right. And the top left was a winery was looking for somebody. And I was like, oh, that sounds, that sounds like it would be fun. I think I was 20. Okay. Um, and it, uh, so I got a job at a winery. It was harvest and I didn't know. Um, I didn't know anything about wine. I drank more wine probably than the average underage college kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, this was like the heyday of Yellowtail mm -hmm. and all of those and all the kind of critter Australian wines. So right. that's, that's all I really knew about wine. So I got a, I got a job at a winery called Horton mm -hmm. in Gordonsville, Virginia. Yep. And I ended up working there for three years and I, I just, couldn't believe people would pay me to just pump wine around and, and manage fermentations and just all the cellar stuff. I so just really you, loved the work. You were hired originally to do harvest. That was your first yeah. job. Yes. So how did you, did you, did they, how did that be, how did you start to work there full time or, or, or at least move on to doing something other than picking the grapes? Yeah. Well, they were, big enough that they had a couple full-time seller people. Mm -hmm. And so I was hired to do the harvest and I thought that would be it. And come, you know, once the dust settled, the the winemaker there said, if you want to stay, you can stay. This is, you know, we'll pay you this much. And if you want to stay and do the, see the whole cycle, mm -hmm. aging, the bottling, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I said, sure. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I it was still at the time, just a job. I was kind of, delaying adulthood it was sort of you know i think i'll you know i'm still doing that yeah many people have that job where you know for a lot of people it's like bartending or whatever for right. me it just happened to be in a cellar and so they the the winemaker there said if you if we'd like you to stay if you would like to so i stayed and then i did another harvest and i'm huge reader i'm very like i've always that's kind of how i absorb information yeah and so I just read, I started reading a lot about wine and, and I was lucky because that's, they had like a little live, like quote unquote library. They just had a lot of wine books, a lot of like back volumes of right. like wine spectator and stuff in the little lunch break room or whatever. So I just read everything and that's kind of how I got to understand wine. So we would be, you know, I'd be cleaning barrels or racking Cab Franc or something. Mm -hmm. And then during lunch, I would just be reading, you know, the wine atlas, just kind of trying to understand it. So I, and then over somewhere in like a year or so, I just kind of, I learned that you could travel and do this. <laughs> and that uh, I also learned that it was like maybe feasible that it could be something you did professionally, right. but it's, you know, I, I grew up in Virginia and Ohio. And so it, the wine industry is not something that anyone sure. ever even considers. Unless you're born yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah. It's just relatively small industry. So, right. so I just got the bug that way, but it was really through the work. I just really loved the, the I mean, there's so much about the, the actual process that is what drew me to it. So have you always worked in Virginia in the, in this region for in wine or did you travel to other regions like California or, or maybe New York or something. Yeah. Like that. I, I worked, um, in, in the Willamette in Oregon. Mm -hmm. I did a, a season there and, uh, I really got the Pinot bug. So yeah. I, I went to it's the right place. Yeah. And I really liked the cool, the cooler climate Pinot. So I went to, I wanted to go to the Willamette. I went to Dundee okay. and worked there for a while. And then I went to, uh, New Zealand, central Otago, also looking for Pinot. Hmm. Um, and worked a season in New Zealand, but then, then came back and that was, um, like 2008. And so I came back to Virginia and then ended up in Northern Virginia. 
in New Zealand when you worked there, were you also growing Sauvignon Blanc? No. So no. we, uh, you know, that region, Central Otago, there's a little bit, but it's this like little oasis of Chard and Pinot. Yeah. And like a little Pinot Gris. Um, but it, they don't do as much Sauvignon Blanc there. It's, it's not too far from Marlborough where right. they'd be doing, um, as far as the eye can see, Sauvignon right. Blanc. But no, we didn't do any. Um, I didn't see a Sauvignon Blanc grape the whole time I was there. Mm. Uh, so when you first started out over at, at uh, Horton, what grape or varietal did you take to? I mean, because you'd say you caught the Pinot bug. Obviously, it wasn't there. So what did you what did you like? Yeah, so that so the, the one of the great things about Horton is they they've always been so experimental. Mm -hmm. So they i mean we grew when i was there they i mean we were working with basically a to z of what anybody was doing in virginia that's a within reason that's a little bit of a generalization but sure. if it's grown in virginia at some point horton has probably grown it mm -hmm. or maybe still grows it so that was like a that and they also make a lot of fruit wines port sparkling wine they have like a huge portfolio which was a lot of fun right so I loved Viognier and they're, they're a, no, like they do a very good job with Viognier. They do. So I got big into Viognier when I was there. Um, well, I got into Norton and they're mm -hmm. a real big producer of Norton um, and Cap Franc yeah. um, were the ones that really stuck out to me. Uh, yeah. Cap Franc does real well here. Yeah. I mean, Cap, Cap Franc being such a consistent, uh, re really well-suited Red and, and, you know, Viognier a little more arguably, but I really love Virginia Viognier and that was one of the ones that stuck out to me most. But I think probably Viognier stuck out to me and Norton in a way because they're so unmistakable and I was still kind of learning. So like right. the, the slight difference between, you know, your uh, somebody's one Merlot from a vineyard and Cap Franc from the same vineyard made in the same way is not quite as noticeable to like a 21 year old is just getting into it as Norton right. <laughs> and Viognier. So I, I think that was part of it for me too. It's yeah. just like the extremes uh, I enjoyed because I was like, wow, this can be like, this can be like, you can make very different things out of kind of the same starting point. Yeah. Yeah. My palate is terrible. I know it's what I like and I think I can, I, I know I can tell the difference between good wine and bad wine or, or good, better wine and bad wine. But as far as, you wouldn't want me to write your tasting notes. That's what I always say. You know, <laughs> since you started out relatively young, as far as I'm concerned, in the business, and you were right there where it was being made, did, your, did you find your palate got developed pretty well? Or, or what would um, you say? Well, the, the way I was trained early, uh -huh. we, you know, we made so many wines. So there was a lot of tasting. Yes. And also the, the winemaker there... Um, his name is Mike Henney. He was very, uh, very kind of hair splitting in blending, or at least from my perspective, <laughs> in blending. And, you know, if, if there's going to be maybe the use of a fining agent or a, like a residual sugar trial. Uh -huh. So we would, you know, before I was really drinking wine at home at work, the first thing I would do when I would get there is he would, he would have, let's say, a late harvest, late harvest Viognier. Mm -hmm. And he'd be like, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're getting ready to bottle it. So here's, here's the late harvest Viognier. And I've just slightly adjusted the sugar levels. Um, here's six different wines, put them in order from driest to sweetest. So, and so I was doing that before yeah. I was really drinking wine at home. Yeah. So I just kind of, I don't, whether or not I, where my palate fits in the, grand range of people's sure. palates. I don't know, but that I sounds like think, great training. Yeah. To me. I think my entry into it was a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I think you're the first person I've ever heard say before I was drinking wine at home, I was drinking it at work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, it's really been, you know, one, one real benefit to mm -hmm. working with my wife, Sarah, who also has a wine was basically a career, mm -hmm. but in the hospitality and wine sales end. Yeah. 
So she came at wine totally opposite. So she would never have tasted a unblended, unfiltered, whatever, a trial, so to speak. But only the finished product in her view is like, well, where? So here's these three Cab Francs. Where do these fit on the market? Uh -huh. what, what's a competitive price point going to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we both come at this real, couldn't be more opposite ends. Yeah, but I uh, think you guys are the perfect pairing to so, be in yeah, this business. We, we choose to look at, I mean, and we also are very lucky that we have nine times out of 10, we have pretty similar um, tastes in wine, like what, what appeals to us, which makes it easier. So let's fast forward a little bit to you ended up at Sunset Hills. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? And worked there for a pretty good stretch. Is that correct? Yeah. Tell me about I, that. I worked there from 2009 to 2016. Okay. Yeah. And what, what was it that you were doing there? So I was the, the head winemaker um, and then kind of overseeing their vineyards. And it, 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 that was how I ended up in Northern Virginia. So they were <laughs> looking for, they had already, they were already open, but they were kind of, they were looking for a full-time winemaker, somebody to, to oversee all the vineyards. So I came on in 2009 and, and it was of such a fortunate kind of connection because A, I just got, you know, got along really well with, with the, the owners and team there and everything, yeah. but also the, the growth they had while I was there was, yeah. was pretty significant. We, we started with, 20 acres and probably making, I don't know, 3,000 cases. Uh, and then when I left, they had 75 acres and they had two, two, two different wineries uh -huh. and they were making probably more than 10,000 cases. So I kind of was got to be along for the ride of yeah. this big growth. Well, I'm sure you had a lot to do with yeah, it. Yeah, acquiring new sites, planting new sites, and then kind of figuring out the focus really um yeah and it was my introduction to this area that's uh -huh. how i got to know how i ended up in northern virginia and um got to know different sites around here and people in the community and everything now in doing in having these conversations and uh doing my own little research it seems like between say the mid 2000s to about 2010 i would say maybe 2000 to 2010 uh, in that decade, I think that's when Virginia, for sure, Maryland on the tail end, started to really hit their stride on growing the right grapes and making the the best wine for this region. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think the the improvement in quality in the past, because I've been here for a little more than ten years, now, mm -hmm. and it's pretty, it's wonderful. Yes, the. And we still have a ways to go. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think, and sta statewide, really, there's been a, you know, it's a, it's a long process. Right. It's such a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a marathon. I'm bring, I bring that up because that's around the time we were at Sunset Hills and they also did a lot of development. I don't want to put their process under a microscope or anything, but during that time, were there any grapes that you discovered that you maybe on the front end tried to grow and you found that maybe we should not go this direction or did you just expand on what they were doing or what specifically there we yeah. the new plantings that we did were usually driven by the site so it was less searching for something new or novel uh -huh. so we i mean we expanded um we put in i mean tanat was always a big big one there um uh we did we kind of expanded the tanat program uh, alberino is a new uh -huh. white that i got interested in towards the end of my time there and, and they're still doing um and we do here too uh -huh. um but it, it, it you know chardonnay was big cab franc um we we started producing a petite man saying i think in 2009 at Sunset Hills, which was which was on the earlier end, but but even somebody like Horton was doing it much much earlier than that. Um, so a lot of the expansion there wasn't extremely experimental in terms of like new varieties, but it was driven more, I would say, by like the individual sites that oh. that they acquired or took over. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting your wife Sarah, although I read about her on your on your website, and according to that, you all met in 2012. 
And soon after that, you, after you got married, you founded this uh, business. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking along those lines before you met Sarah or was it kind of like the synergy between the two of you that said, let's spring out into this industry? I think I always thought, you know, it'd be fun to do like a private sure. label, sure. but I never, but I, it always ended at, it would be fun to make the wine. I was like, oh, it'd, be, it'd be fun <laughs> to do like a 50 cases of this, but uh -huh. then I would not do it because I don't know how I'm going to sell it. Sure. And I would, and I even, I talked a few times to other winemakers who had done that and they were always like, yeah, it's great, but it's, how are you going to sell it? Right. Um, so we, the, you know, we we met in 2012, and in two, next the next year, 2013, at some point, we got connected to. So I have been involved in like the Loudon Wineries Association sure. or Virginia Vineyards Association, things like that. And so sometimes when people have like a, they think they have they have a really big yard and they think it might be good for a vineyard, or they're looking, they'd like maybe like to dip their toe in the industry, or they. Their, their parents have a great slope and they, mm -hmm. you know, you know, more or less everybody thinks their <laughs> slope is, this, this is where you're going to make, this is where the great Virginia Cab Saw is going to come from. Right. Uh, so I would, but I would go look at these properties because I, I, I like to look at them. I'm very, uh -huh. like, I'm very, we've always been very, like, site focused. So I, I liked looking at properties, learning about the soil, things like that. So a lot, I often still will go and look at people's properties and just say, you know, here's my two cents. This is, these would, this would be the next steps I would take. So in 2013, I got a call and somebody had bought a property and there's a vineyard on it that existed, a little four acre vineyard. And they, they, they didn't want to have to do anything with it, but they wanted to, it to be maintained and they wanted to, you know, lease it to somebody or, or use it, make sure it was used well. Mm -hmm. And I had been there because we, um, I'd been there once or twice, and so I, I kind of knew a little bit about it, but I went and looked at it, and they, I went and looked at it, and I told them, okay, well, let me, you know, give me a day, and I'll, I'll send you an email and, and give you my thoughts and whatever, and I called Sarah, like, from the site, and I said, hey, we've never even talked about having, like, a label, but I found the site, and that was the, what, a vineyard called Bethany Ridge, which is um, still our primary property. Yeah, um, and that's so that's how we got started. It was really I was like, look, we've never brainstormed this. We've never written a business <laughs> plan. Uh, I don't know how much it'll cost, um, but <laughs> well, I found we, it. Yeah, I was like, you know, it was always. I think we always viewed it as like, if if we if we think we could do it in a in a worthwhile way that was that was truly like wine focused or site focused we would go for it and i was like i called her up i said look what are you doing <laughs> you got to come check this out uh like i think i think we could get a lease and i think we can make it work so now i saw that you are working about 50 acres or mm -hmm. so of grapes and you haven't listed so i must go down you mentioned the first one bethany ridge yes i think that's your largest piece of property um i have a an affinity for reds. So, mm -hmm. so I, when I was writing my notes, I saw, well, I realized that I only put down the reds <laughs> that you grow there. Oh. But I was going to ask you about each of these properties. And I know that you grow some other things. Other than you have Merlot, Cap Franc, Cap Sauve, Petit Verdot, and Tanat at, at Bethany Ridge. Ridge. Yes. I don't, you might have some whites there, but I, you know, I didn't you, put them you're down. You're like, yeah, <laughs> I just want the reds. Yeah. yeah. So Bethany Ridge is our, Biggest property. Right. So it started out as four acres. Now it's 25. Yeah. And it is on the um, Catoctin Ridge in in Loudoun County. Um, we grow we grow those reds, Bordeaux and then Tanat. Mm -hmm. Bordeaux focused with Tanat. And the, we grow a lot of whites there. We, we grow Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Viognier, Petit Mansang, Chenin Blanc, Albarino, and a little bit of Gruner. Mm -hmm. Um I think that's all. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a it's about 50-50 whites and reds. Okay. That, that property. Let me ask you about sites, since you said you're very good at them. Um, now, there's quite a mix on that, was it 25 acres? Yes. About a piece of property. Are there, I think I know the answer to this, but are there sections of that property that lend themselves to a particular 
type of grape or could you plant the Chardonnay anywhere in there or could you part you know, the Tanat anywhere in there? You just happen to pick where it is. No. Yeah. We, so we, you know, the, this area, at least, especially when you're on the ridges, uh-huh. so like the Blue Ridge or the Catoctin Ridge, which are kind of the two uh, bookmarks of Loudon, like the valley being in between them. And then we have these right. two long ridges. So the soils change so, you know, there's, it's so like amorphous. They change yeah. so quickly. So we, we, we will bring someone in and have them map the soils. Um, and then... There's a combination of, you know, you look at drainage being in, in our area enormous. Um, the drainage, the 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 depth before you hit rock, or how much like good nut- nutrient rich stuff is there. Uh, the aspect, um, the, the degree of slope, um, and then kind of those things combined. So we would take all that into consideration. And decide what goes there. And my, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't presume that we get it when, that we get it even 80% right when we map the site and then decide, okay, well, you know, this is a, this, this is a slight Northern slope. So that's a little bit of a, a, a cooler aspect. Uh-huh. So it's going to be difficult to get maybe reds to ripen there, but there might be some benefits to putting something like Sauvignon Blanc there. So we, we look at all these things and then we make the best kind of the best educated guess we can. I still don't think we're always, we won't always get it right, but if you're the closer you get to that, it makes everything else so much easier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we have a, we have a good example is we have a, a site that we didn't plant, but that we manage now, which is um, called Russ mountain. And it's just Merlot. It's four acres of Merlot. Mm-hmm. And I think, People's when people are establishing a vineyard, that would be counterintuitive because well, you can only make Merlot, but it does the Merlot is the Merlot does outstanding there, and so what we end up getting is like like just really expressive, dense, bold Merlot, and it's there's a higher value in that right than well shouldn't you do a little Merlot, a little Cab Franc, a little PV so you can do your blend, and then we should, we we also want to make a a shard so we'll do like a you know that's what a lot right. of people do we, we've kind of moved moved away from that and and really whatever whatever you think should go there and the sort of the, the most educated decision making process you can go through to get there 10 years from now 15 years from now it makes a huge difference yeah um and you know the a lot of and and we probably were made this mistake also being like, well, wouldn't that be too much Chardonnay? Let's say that's a whole 10 acre block and it should be all Chardonnay. Well, wouldn't that be too much Chardonnay? Well, you know, another argument would be, well, if Chardonnay is going to really do well there, Mm -hmm. then you're going to be able to make a pretty special Chardonnay. Yeah. And then how much of that should you make if it's really special and you, you, you farm it well and you, you do some thoughtful winemaking. Maybe, maybe you do need 10 acres of Chardonnay. Yeah. And so we have let more like the site itself dictate what we produce. And yeah. I don't know if that really answers your question. No, it but, does. Uh, I mean, they, you got into exactly what I was looking for because that's really what I've come to appreciate. And when I speak to people about Virginia wine and wine in this region who are big wine drinkers, but say they only drink like California wines or that's really what they're used to or something coming from. New Zealand or Australia or something like that. I tried to tell them as best I can. You're obviously more articulate in it than I am, more versed in it than I am. Uh, the craft and the actual art of putting together wine in this region. And then if it's done really well, you get something really special. And that's what you, you know, that's, I think, where people who do drink wine and have started drinking wine in this area have started to really develop a great appreciation for Virginia wine and yeah. for Maryland wine. That's one of the, <laughs> the the objectives of this podcast. I would really like people to learn more about the craft beverages in this in this uh, region because I think people are doing some really special things with both wine, uh, craft beer, and distilling. And if so, you know, I think that we should be a destination, much like 
uh, Napa it was. I think we're a lot like California in the early 70s as far as the wine product. We'll never make as much wine as they do uh, or be maybe worldwide distributors of in that because we can still make enough grapes. There's not enough grapes produced in the state of Virginia <laughs> to, to, right, to yeah. compete with the, you know, maybe with one of them, but it, you know, everyone have to work together. All right. So we're at the North Gate. The, there are two other, you mentioned Rust Mountain, so I won't mention that, but you have North Gate, which is here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I don't know what vines I'm looking at right now. They're Petit Verdot is what I wrote down. Yeah, so Northgate is the property where the tasting room and our production facility Okay. So that's where people visit. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, it's primarily white grapes. We grow Chardonnay, yeah. Viognier, Petit Mansang, and Petit Verdot. Okay. And this is a, uh, so that's in Purcellville, just outside of Purcellville. And it's sort of centrally located to where our properties are. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Twin Notch. Yeah. So Twin Notch is a vineyard that is like the sister vineyard to Bethany Ridge. It's it's, it's around the corner. It's the same. It's the same. It's the Catoctin Ridge, sort Mm -hmm. of the west facing side of the Catoctin Ridge. Um, It is more, it is Bordeaux Ritz um, with a heavier focus on Merlot and Cab Franc. And then we grow Sauvignon Blanc there and a little bit of Petit Mansin. And then we have Weatherly, Weatherly, which is a vineyard in Lovettsville. Mm-hmm. It is Cabernet Franc, and that is a that's a fun site because it's just we just do rosé. It's a rosé focused. Site. Oh, okay. Um, and it's actually it's we listed it as Cabernet Franc, but it's Cabernet Franc with a little bit of Malbec and a little bit of Petit Mansang, but it all goes into in, a rosé. And that's a that's in the valley. And it's just more well suited as a rose site, but we've we just farm it specifically for rose, and um, it makes a real fun, like the, the very distinct wine we get. Yeah. From that. And then we actually have a sixth site that's not listed yet on the website because we haven't started cropping it yet, okay. which is called Hickory Wind, and it is Tanat, Albarino, and Cabernet Franc, and that's in Clark County. So it's on the, the Bull Run range, but on the it is um, east facing. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it's west facing, um, and it's at it's our highest elevation site. It's at 1,300 feet, um, which is significantly higher than any of the other sites. Russ Mountain is at about 900, um, 950 feet, but the Hickory Wind next year is real exciting because we're gonna we'll crop that, uh, and that's a that's the rock that site is so rocky. I didn't think it was possible to plant. Uh, and what do you, you, what, what, it's all rocky, the whole thing? Or it's, just part yeah, of it? when we, we don't own it, we, right. it's a kind of a partnership with the, the family that lives right. there and owns it. And they, they wanted to do a vineyard there and they wanted to work with us on it. And I was like, I don't think you can get a post in here. Like, <laughs> uh, but it's the hard work's done. It's all planted. And, yeah. Um, so it's, it's a great, um, like a, seven and a half degree slope west super rocky like um so it'll be um but that's good for drainage right yeah, it's great for drainage it it it'll, it'll be a i'm interested to see what what comes of it yeah so next year will be a real <laughs> exciting for us there the the wines you currently offer like now i wanted to let everyone know what they could get here now i i saw what was on your website i don't know if it's how how well it's updated the you have the in the whites it had two different Sauvignon box mm-hmm. uh one from twin notch and one from bethany ridge which i i like the fact that you have set them separated by their locations um and then the state chart chardonnay mm-hmm. and the viennier yeah we do um we do sauvignon blanc chardonnay we have our Viognier, we do Petit Mansang. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we for the most part, do vineyard designate bottlings, like you're saying. So we have two, two salt blancs right now. Um, some years we would have two Petit Mansangs or two Viognier's. We could even, moving forward, have two Chardonnay's. If the wines don't kind of show themselves in an interesting way that's unique from each other, we will blend them together, or if we think the blend is better. So right now, this pr- particularly from the 2019 vintage with the whites, we ended up blending a lot of the, the like the Petit Mansangs were blended together. Uh, mm-hmm. The Viognier's were blended together. Um, 
for reds, we do uh, mostly vineyard designate blends. Mm -hmm. So we, we're just actually today releasing, um, uh, oh, we missed a vineyard, Dutchman's Creek. Oh. <laughs> uh, that might not be on the website. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it. That's a Cabernet Franc site too, okay. with a little bit of Petit Verdot and a little bit of Tanat. And we do we do a Cabernet Franc varietal from there, but we blend into it from a Petit Verdot and Tanat, theoretically. Um, so we do a Dutchman's Creek Cab Franc. We have a um, Tanat. We always produce a Tanat. Um, we do just a single varietal Tanat. Yeah, yeah. The one well, usually. Okay. Uh, it's a single vineyard to not right now. The, our release is our 2018, which is not a single vineyard and it's got petite Bordeaux. In it yeah. As well. Yeah. Uh, but that, that was a, that vintage was a little bit of an outlier. Um, we, and then we do, um, we do a, a blend from twin notch. So twin notch red blends. We do Russ mountain Merlot. We'll do uh, Bethany Ridge red blend, which we haven't released yet. We do a, um, our kind of, quote unquote, sort of declassified red is called Loudoun County Cuvée. So that's mm -hmm. sort of the, more of the, the Claret. Uh -huh. uh, and we do some sparkling wines. We do a sparkling rosé. Um, we're about to release uh, a white sparkling and we do a red sparkling. Um, these are pretty small quantities. They're not on the website right now because okay. we're sold out. Um, nice. Yeah. And we, <laughs> we, we just released, and this one has been fun. We... We have a wine called What Will the Women Drink? Okay. Which is a kind of response to a gentleman that was in the tasting room right when we opened and he was talking to my wife and he kind of looked around and he was like, you know, where are you guys going to put the, the slushy machine? Oh, boy. Uh, and she was <laughs> like, uh, you know, politely, I'm sure she was like, oh, but, you know, my... My husband is not interested in putting his wine in a slushy. Uh, she's like, you know, that, that, that's not really our thing here. So, right. so he he kind of thought about it and looked around all concerned and said, oh, well, then what will the women drink? Uh-oh. <laughs> so, uh, so we bottle a Tanat Petit Verdot Cab Franc blend that is the heaviest barrels of our vintage. And it is called What Will the Women Drink? And then a portion of those proceeds are donated to women's rights groups. We're all out of that right now. We're out, you know, the timing of this interview, yeah. we're out of a lot of these, yeah. which is a good problem to have. But Well, you know, I'm surprised to hear the the blend because, uh, you know, I love Tanat. I was about to go into a few questions about Tanat and why I don't find it as often as I would like. But before then, uh, you know, I think slushy, I think of something that's a little less... If you, you know, lower in tannin, you know, and, and, right. And I, but what will the women drink? Well, <laughs> That's we, not in it. So it must not be what I'm thinking. No, is. no, no, no. So we, it is the, it is, it, it is the furthest wine from a slushy machine <laughs> as you could possibly yeah, get. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. So it, we, we thought what we, you know, there's no reason that we should assume that sure women can't drink or don't want to drink or don't appreciate these heavier reds. And also often that style of wine is branded and marketed to men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, and I agree with you. A, no, that, that's good. I just, you know, when he said slushy machine, I was like, yeah, wow, no, but no, you no. put Tanat in it. Wow. So, yeah, and it's a, it, the, the packaging on that wine is a little bit different. And um, we just released the 17 in August. So we're talking in October. And it didn't last two months. Yeah, I'll, um, have to, I'll have to keep my eye out for your next year. Yeah, we'll have one next month. year. Yeah. Okay. Um, and just quickly about Tanat. I, you know, I, I do like it a lot. I like big, bold, heavily tannin wine. Uh, why do you think, is it a tough grape to grow? Is it tricky? Or is it just that it is not as some? No, I, I'm a very big fan of Tanat in Virginia. It, you, it does require certain... Characteristics: It doesn't like to get real cold. Mm -hmm. It does not like to be wet. So it has some yeah. idiosyncrasies. But if you've got it in the right place, I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah. I and that was a grape I was familiar with even from at Horton. Mm -hmm. They were they were an early planter and producer of Tanat. And we, I, you know, my, my the the wines can be they're 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 dark. They they have a lot of acid. They have a lot of tannin. 
they can be quite rustic, mm-hmm. which I don't care for as much with Tanat. And even if you go to like the Mataran, they're, they, I mean, they, they're, they can be released like eight years after the vintage. And that's how long it takes mm-hmm. to, to tame it a little bit. We actually have always grown Tanat, but we sold it, sold the fruit to other wineries because we didn't want to produce the Tanat because it wasn't our style, that mm-hmm. like rustic. I just didn't like Virginia Tanat. And then actually the way it happened, we, we were selling it to, to a local winemaker and we sold him this and he, he, we, we, there's, this is not to get too much in the weeds for this, <laughs> but you, there's different ways you can sell grapes. And a big part of what we do is, is we, we sell grapes. We sell mm-hmm. grapes to a lot of wineries. So you can sell by the ton or you can sell by the acre. And if you sell by the acre, they are basically like quote unquote leasing an acre. And then they can kind of dictate the way things are done. So mm-hmm. that's a, sometimes a more interesting way to do it. So we, we sold the acre of Tanat to another winemaker and he, he had us farm it in a way that was different than what I would have done my, my like protocol for Tanat. And right. so we did exactly what he wanted. We, we picked it when he wanted. And then, you know, I think in, in February or March, Sarah and I went and I was like, oh, you know, can we taste the Tanat? I just want to see how it turned out. And he, we tasted it and I was like, that's it. We know what to do. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and uh, I was like, this is what I want. It's a, it's more like mid palate focused. It's qu- kind of quote unquote lighter art, art yeah. than some other wineries, yeah. but it's, it's just got like a balance to it that, yeah. that we really, we didn't know how to get. And so now we yeah. now, but I, you know, to, to answer your question, really, I think it's a, uh, great grape yeah for virginia uh, yeah. and we we've expanded our tanat since we started considerably yeah I mean, you've, you've, yeah <laughs> you've mentioned it quite a few yeah. times i and i was like wow okay well i'm definitely going to uh, get a bottle of this uh the tanat pinot i mean petite for yeah blend. yeah yeah for sure um okay just a couple questions that i'll let you go sure tanat- no yeah, i got it. Um, as I was saying, one of the objectives of this uh, podcast is to inform those who aren't familiar with wine that's produced in this region so they can maybe get a little bit more of an understanding and form the correct expectation of what to get in the bottle. I find that sometimes that, you know, those people I've asked about Virginia wines, local people, and they'll say, oh, I really don't like it. They had, a, they had, they had the wrong expectation before they even opened the bottle. They expected to get you know, uh, uh, Oregon Pinot or a, you know, a big California cab. And it's like, that's not what's in the bottle. You should, and, and sometimes when I give them that little expert, you know, I describe what's in the bottle before they, they drink it, they have a better, uh, they take to it a lot better. So with all that said, are there any misconceptions or anything about Virginia wine or Walsh family wine, if you want to be that specific, that you'd like to tell people that, you know, since you interact with people all the time, I'm sure you've heard some things about Virginia wine that you would like to maybe, you know, tell people about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would have a good answer to the misconceptions. I mean, I think the main piece of information that a lot of people who are like, for example, if they're coming to a tasting room in this area, you know, anywhere in Virginia, Maryland, like you're saying, I think the main assumption is that there's like a medium to medium low level of quality that we're going to get because they've had those wines before. Sure. And it's, it takes us a long time to change opinion. I mean, if, if you, even now, if you randomly named, you know, four Virginia wineries that you were going to visit tomorrow, you know, it's, it's very possible that, that there would be some wines there that would disappoint you. And uh-huh. I, you know, I just, it's very, that's it, possible. Yeah. So I think there's a, that's kind of the, the main like assumption people come in with. And then, and then in, you know, assuming we're doing, we're doing our diligence and doing a good job, then they're, they're really pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there are big stylistic assumptions yet. I mean, there's Cabernet Franc. People have a feel for what that's going to be like. Viognier, people have a feel for what that's going to be like. Um, to not, mm-hmm. you know, but even that, how many 
if you, you know, how many people even know what Tanat is? Right. Like, right. you know, it's just, it takes a while. So I think those two grapes were starting to get an understanding of like, okay, well, yeah. if you like, if you like our, if you like a little Walsh Viognier, you probably will like most other Virginia Vineyards Viognier. They're not all the same, but there is a very distinctive Virginia varietal there is. approach to it. And uh-huh. so we're starting to get those. I, I, we see with people that come in, they're starting to get those understandings. Uh, That's good. Yeah. And, but, and I think more and more as more wineries are putting out really delicious premium wines, it's breaking the, this assumption that there's some kind of, you know, they can be good, but they can't be great. And I think people are starting to see that no, they can be great. Like, yeah. uh, And a lot of them are, people are, yeah, people are really, I mean, every year I'm just, you know, blown away by what our community of wineries is doing. and, And it's, it's all going in a good direction. You, I know you've been in this business uh, in Virginia for quite a while now, but if you could send a message to yourself back when uh, you and uh, your wife or Sarah were thinking about doing venturing out in this, and is there something you know now that you wish you had known then, and if you could send a message back in time to tell yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Is there any, uh, what, would you, what would you say? If anything. We, I mean, well, enjoy it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work you know, everybody in this business works very hard and it's, um, you know, as with any job, it's, you've got to remember that there's, I mean, it's a wonderful, I mean, we make wine. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to do. It's good. You know, I think it's good for the community. It's a, it's a, but it's a, it's for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, so just remember to have fun with it, enjoy it. Um, we never would have thought we would even have a tape. We would be have a tasting room. We never intended mm-hmm. any of this to happen. That's like the other uh, thing that surprises people often. We, even when we started, we we never talked about having a tasting room. <laughs> or we just wanted to have four acres and sell the wine to restaurants. That's all we did for a couple of years. We okay. sold it all to restaurants. Okay. And that, that I was like, let's, let's just price it for restaurants. And then we don't have to deal with all this other stuff. Right. right. Uh, turns out people deal with all this other stuff because it is good. Yeah. It makes sense for a business. So, but I think I would, I would let us be surprised by how it all went, but just enjoy <laughs> it. I mean, you know, you're, we're talking, this is late October. So this is, we're done with harvest, but we're still, we're still pressing. We have all kinds of fermentations going. So we're still kind of caught in the weeds of all this. And, you know, I even like today show up and I still feel like, man, this is, this is a wonderful business. Like this is, I enjoy it. I sincerely do. And so I would just remind yeah. to be like, just well, you've done well. I think you have a lot to be very proud of, very satisfied about. Well, uh, to finish up, I really, like I said, the, one of the things I want to do is promote the, the, Producers here, I want to produ- pr- uh, promote uh, Walsh Family Wine. Is there this this episode will drop probably the week of Thanksgiving or maybe the week before? Uh, is there anything I know that you all were doing a series called Drink Well? I believe because of the the pandemic, and I don't know if you're still doing that. But is there anything you want to let people know about and how they can come? You know, when to come visit and how they can get some of your wine? Absolutely. So. We are, yeah, we are, we, we do, we are still doing drink well. So drink well is a virtual tasting that we do right now. It is every other Friday. Um, and it's a, I mean, I think probably most of the people that would listen to this are familiar with what a virtual tasting is, yes. but we do it with, with, with our wines, with wines from our, our, our friends in Virginia. And then we have also done it with, with wines from the West coast, international wines, and we'll bring in winemakers or salespeople or, you know, various people to talk about the wines. And those have been great and are a lot of fun. And we will still be doing them when, when you all are listening to this. Um, it's really been wonderful. I don't think anybody expected we'd be doing virtual tastings this time last year, but we've, we've really taken to it and enjoyed it. And then we are, we're open 
uh, seven days a week. Um, we would love to have have people out where by reservation. But if you go to the website, you can make a reservation. Email us. You can make a reservation that way. Um, and we, you know, are we have kind of a medium sized tasting room, but we have a lot of outdoor space. So we've been fortunate that we've been able to kind of spread people out and keep people comfortable, and you know, still keep keep people here and, and let them enjoy the space. Yeah. When my partner Joan and I came here, uh, it was cold. So they had the fire, the fire going. It was really yeah. nice. It was a really nice area. So I would encourage anybody listening who finds themselves in Percival to please uh, give a stop by and see what they're doing here. They're doing, you're doing some really good things. Awesome. So Nate, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to come talk to us and uh, I'll see you soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. Well, that's another show in the books. I had a really fantastic time with Nate Walsh at Walsh Family Wine. And I did have the pleasure of meeting Sarah afterwards and talking about her home, Atlanta, Georgia, where I learned to drink bourbon and had a terrible rum experience. Yeah, it was when I was a college student there, and that is a totally different podcast. If you are in or near Percival, Virginia, you have to go check out Walsh Family Wine. Buy a bottle of the Tanat and Petit Verdot blend. If there's any left, um, I guarantee you're going to love it. You will thank me. Also, check out their website. It's in the show notes. They will ship any bottle that they offer there that's on the website to you if your state allows it. So go do it and do it now. I'd like to ask you to please subscribe to the pod. If you haven't done so yet, I'm going to introduce you to some of the best folks in the DMV, just like the Walsh's in the surrounding area, and that's a promise. So please tell your friends about us and have them tune in. They will thank you for it, and I certainly will. Listen, I'm all about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. And if you agree with that, please share the pod. The more it grows, the more I can get the word out about the craft beverage culture here in the DMV, and that's a great thing. This podcast was produced by my friends at Q9. Listen, if they can make a Babylon MC like me sound good, imagine what they can do for someone who can proficiently string words together. Imagine. If you're in the podcast biz, please Google Q9 and ask them about their services. Tell them that I sent you. They're worth the peak. Trust me. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce you to. And finally, listen, I know there's a ton of media you could be listening to right now besides me. And so that's why I work so hard to get you the type of content that I do, because I truly appreciate your time investment in me and in this show. Thanks again for listening. Remember, always have a designated driver, so I'll be able to see you next time. East Vicata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.